Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney. I'm Jed. And I'm Alistair. And almost every fortnight, one of us tells the other a story from the rich and varied history of Sydney and her surrounds. Alistair, I'm sure you can recall my last episode since it was so incredibly fabulous. (laughs) Already hailed as a modern classic. Yes, I do. It was the history of kind of the gay party scene in Sydney uh, from about the 1920s until now. Exactly right. Uh, well, I'd like it to be until now, but I really feel like it was more until the early 1990s when things started to... Until the party ended. (laughs) Yeah, the noise complaints won out in the end. (laughs) But we're moving on to your excellent, uh, your story for this week, which I'm super excited to hear because, as you may recall, I correctly uh, deciphered your clue. Yes. I haven't announced it yet. Yes, so I think, I'm not sure how careful the editing was around it, but you you did... He did know what I was going to be talking about today, uh, but we didn't want to give it away in the episode last week. So I said I was going to be talking about the uh, Hyde Park obelisk and the history behind it. And Jed, I believe you already know what that Hyde Park obelisk kind of is. Yeah, so it's the obelisk at the corner of Bathurst and Elizabeth Streets. And it's got this Egyptian sort of aesthetic to it. And I had no idea for years and years and years and years. And eventually, I must, someone must have told me, I can't imagine I figured it out on my own, that it is, in fact, hiding a sewer vent. Indeed, indeed. Um, so I also, for a very long time, didn't know what the deal was behind it. And I thought, what better story than a bit of infrastructure, which I think when we started this podcast, we thought we would be talking about infrastructure quite a lot, but we've ended up of going into all kinds of different stories but today it's it's a infrastructure episode for us excellent it's been a while we've done a few i think i've done a few i did the first railway uh, yeah, and the and great north road the road yeah but this might be your first infrastructure story i think it is it's so we're going to be doing a a kind of retrospective on sydney's sewer system which is actually i've been fascinated with it and i hope that uh, you will be too awesome i've been wanting to learn more about this for a little while now and I've done, uh, I definitely haven't done any research because I want to hear it all told to me by you. So I'm super excited. Let's get stuck into it. All right. So before we begin, I just want to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which I record this podcast, which is the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. And in my case, that's the Rajri people. And uh, in general, the this story today is going to be about a large part of Sydney. So broadly, the land of the Eora Nation. So we'll start our story of Sydney sewerage with the tank stream, the source of fresh water that convinced the first fleet to deviate from the original plan, uh, which was to establish a settlement at Botany Bay and instead to relocate to Port Jackson. This fresh water was the lifeblood of the settlement, which grew up around it. But within nigh on 10 years, there were clearly already serious problems with sewage pollution. <laughs> Mm-hmm. For a government order in 1802 proclaimed, and here's our first quote, If any person whatever is detected in throwing any filth into the stream of fresh water, cleaning fish, washing, erecting pigsties near it, their home will be taken down and forfeit five pounds to the orphan fund. Oh, well, that's a nice cause. Yeah, I quite like that. I left that bit in. It's a very specific punishment, but uh, <laughs> it's a shame because you get your house taken down. So... <laughs> I mean, you could quickly uh, find yourself in trouble and maybe end up producing some orphans, but you've also given some of your money to the orphan fund. To the pre-existing orphans from from previously uh, dehomed people. Yeah, precisely. So despite these uh, multiple government orders to uh, try to forbid the disposal of waste in the stream, and also some forlorn construction of fences along the stream banks to keep the residents from uh, dumping things in it, By 1826, the tank stream had become Sydney's de facto sewerage system and was abandoned as a drinking water supply because it was so fouled with waste. Mm, I mean, kind of inevitable. There was a single like flowing body of water of of relatively small scale for this growing town. Where, you know, there's, it's one catchment. Where else is it going to go? Yeah. Yeah. So you might ask, Jed, uh, what was one supposed to do with one's human waste products? Uh, if not, mm. carry it in a bucket and just slosh it into the local stream. I guess you could go slightly over the ridge and ditch it into Darling Harbour or um, Bullamaloo Bay, whatever creek was flowing into there. Yeah. Yeah. Or directly into the harbour, which we'll see in the future becomes the high tech solution. <laughs> 
but uh, really the, the, the system in place was it was a cesspit system. So basically large holes dug in your backyard. And the kind of standard idea was that you should get a night cart person to come and cart away your waste while you were sleeping. And then they would take it to market gardens outside of the city where it would be used as fertilizer, or they would kind of maybe just dump it into fields on the outskirts of town where it would kind of slowly meld back into the, mm. to the grassy plains. Uh, the problem was, if you were well off, you could definitely afford to get such a cart person to cart your waste away. But if you weren't well off, uh, you often couldn't afford to frequently pay to have the cesspit emptied. And so there was a massive problem of overflowing cesspits with waste seeping into nearby drinking wells, flowing into the street. And this was basically happening in the area, the poorest areas where there were really cramped living quarters, people on top of each other, and there's just waste everywhere. And with it, all of the attendant diseases. Didn't we have a whole host of unpaid public servants, a.k.a. convicts, <laughs> who could have been employed as a night night soilman for the um, poorer parts of town? That's an excellent point. At this point, they still have they have their convicts, but maybe they've given them to a to wealthy landowners to run their farms. I think they were in quite high demand, the convicts, for as a free labor. <laughs> Typical. Yeah. Or or if they were being punished, then I guess doing big civic kind of works. But it seems like, yeah, using, using them as labor to cart away feces didn't seem to come into the plans. Mm. It's that obsession with big civic works. It's got us nowhere good. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, there were no regulations at this time compelling landlords to build sanitary living quarters and housing was in short supply. And so we find articles in the Herald at the time criticizing landlords who would buy land, cram as many people into cramped living quarters as possible <laughs> upon it, not provide drains, water or paving, and uh, basically create an even bigger problem. Mm. Sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> An 1842 article lamented, With a mass of filth which is accumulating every day, we have scarcely a single sewer to carry it off. Mm-hmm. All right. Enter so. a single sewer to carry it off. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's quite, a lot, there's quite a lot of arguing before that happens. <laughs> and this is where we, we find our first exciting thing about sewers, which is you can more or less tell the history of democracy in New South Wales and Sydney through the history of sewers. Mm, okay. Are you ready for it? I'm re- yeah, I have absolutely no idea where this is going to go. So while wealthy landowners uh, certainly could have been building better appointed housing, the elephant in the room was really the larger debate and social shift going on back in Britain and to a smaller extent in Australia at the time, which was that they were starting to recognize that health and sanitation were issues of public significance, which probably were going to require government intervention. This is cholera outbreak time? Yeah, just just really horrific death rates in modern kind of industrializing cities. So as the kind of traditional laissez-faire notions of individual responsibility for these kind of things were just weren't really working and uh, contemporary urban environments were in, just increasingly death traps. <laughs> and there was growing movements and reports saying we're going to have to do something about this. And so this is where the history of sewers and the history of the very city of Sydney itself collide. Ah. Yeah. Because not everyone was happy uh, about these changes in worldview. Uh, So, in fact, when the colonial government announced that it was considering incorporating the uh, city of Sydney so that just such local issues as urban sewerage could be addressed... And in so doing, in creating this city of Sydney, they would be uh, kind of creating the very first semblances of democratic power in New South Wales. These announcements were actually met with either apathy or actually outright opposition by many of the wealthy male landowners. Mm. Well, I'm not going to be paying more taxes, am I? Precisely. Precisely the concern. Bloody hell. So although these wealthy landowners would have been the people who, the only people allowed to vote Uh, for such a kind of council and the only people able to stand on it, they were very concerned that they might end up having to pay taxes and rates to to create some infrastructure. Mm. In terms of self-interest, this is perhaps understandable because generally these landowners lived in houses on larger lots away from the cramped and unsanitary conditions of the poorer areas of the city. 
And yet, since they were the primary landowners of many of these areas in the city, they were exactly the people who would be paying rates to the city of Sydney to fund on any public work. And they essentially then had the the least to gain and the most to lose from public expenditure on the system of sewers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I'm thinking here is why couldn't the colonial government do it? Why do they need to create a new entity? Well, that's an interesting argument, Jed, and an argument that was precisely the one of the ones used by these wealthy landowners. <laughs> <laughs> now that I'm a landowner, I really understand things from their perspective. <laughs> They said, look, that's all well and good, uh, but we think that if you're going to create the city of Sydney, we have so much work to do to create all of the sewers and uh, kind of public health infrastructure necessary to to make this city a proper city. We will uh, need a large upfront grant from the colonial government, or alternatively, you can create this democratic body, but and we'll kind of vote on how we want things to work, but you will need to fund all of the things that we vote on. Uh, the other argument, which I thought you would enjoy, was there was actually an interesting twist on the no taxation without representation line. These landowners argued that it was since the Legislative Council of New South Wales, the colonial government um, at this time was essentially like a military dictatorship still. It was the last last years of this. So there's no elected members on the Legislative Council. Oh, right. They're all appointed. Yeah. So So okay. basically the argument was... Since, since they had no representation on this council officially, they had no authority to hoist a new taxing body on them, even if the taxing body that was being hoisted on them was a democratic city council. <laughs> Clever. I'm guessing yeah. it didn't fly. <laughs> no. In fact, neither of these arguments flew. <laughs> the, uh, the ideological one or the uh, pragmatic, come on, you're going to have to give us a bit of an upfront kind of cash injection to make this work. And the city of Sydney was incorporated without any endowment in 1842. An unwanted and resented city. <laughs> and look how far it's come. Exactly, exactly. The interesting thing is, of course, the people on the council and the people voting uh, weren't that interested in paying high taxes. So in the first 10 and a bit years of the existence of the city of Sydney until 1853, the city corporation met fierce resistance, uh, raising any taxes at all. And it achieved basically nothing when it came to addressing the enormous sewage problem. Mm. Uh, the problem was so bad that drastic action was eventually taken. And the colonial government uh, basically gave up on this <laughs> quick attempt at democracy and abolished the city corporation in 1853, appointing oh. three unelected commissioners in its place to run things. Stick with what works, right? <laughs> yeah. So these commissioners immediately embarked on vast improvement projects, spending twice as much in the first five months of their tenure as elected officials did in their first 10 years of government. So it, at this point, right, in 18, right before these commissioners got stuck into it in uh, yeah. the early 1850s, yeah, Sydney's now sort of 60 years old. Yeah. And it, like, what's the sewer situation looking like? Is it literally just people carting it out? Tank streams absolutely done for. Now we've got a new, there was a new source of water coming in from um, Moore Park. Yeah. So the water was not tainted, but it was just, tank stream was just a functional sewer. Is that the deal? Uh, yeah, the tank stream so so fouled for sure that, yeah, it's not working. There's There are some wells that are dug, but the concern is that the, with sewage around that they could easily be kind of infested. You have the running water coming in, as you said, drinking water that would have to be gathered from fountains coming from Moore Park. But yes, that that's the deal. There's no, there's no extensive s system of pipes taking sewage anywhere. It has to be carted out. Yeah, right. However, that's just changed because these commissioners have come in, right? And they've, uh, they've got mm -hmm. to work. And the result of this benevolent debt accruing dictatorship was Sydney's first sewerage system, which we're now going to turn to in all of its glory. Excellent. Uh, and just before we do, I'm just going to say that the city of Sydney was returned to being run by an elected body after a three-year interlude of benevolent commissioner control and has been ever since a democratic body. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, they do that once every while in a while to this day, right? When a local government council gets a bit out of hand, the state <laughs> government just goes, nope, <laughs> yep. throws them all out and appoints an, um, someone to run it instead, you know, with the intention of it becoming democratic once more. 
And it's sort of hard to see that this is a terror. People tend to get up in arms about it. But, like, if the if the council's doing... It had 10 years and did nothing, I think it was probably the right thing to do. Yeah, you definitely needed a sewage system. So, now is that time that we've been talking about a little this week, Jed. It's an exciting first for stories from Sydney because mm-hmm. I have a historical map to show you. Uh, which is a map of the original sewage system. I am besotted by it, and I, I'm hoping that I can print it out and have it displayed in our house, but I'm not sure what the missus thinks of that. <laughs> uh, we are going to post it on social media to accompany this episode so that our listeners can also look at it. But if you've got it up in front of you... I certainly do now. I'm just getting my head around it. Excellent. No scale, so it's not a real map. It's a beautiful map, though. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Okay, so where are, it's at 1877. Yes. So okay. this is basically the whole system kickstarted into place by the commissioners and then extended. So the very, very first system, it's a little hard to see the dark black lines of the sewerage lines. Mm-hmm. I can see our railway there with Devonshire Street um, terminus at Cleveland Paddock. It, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's, it's good, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So we're going to be looking up near Sydney Cove and you can see that there's a pipe going along Benelong Point. Mm-hmm. The outfall is into the harbour right where now the Sydney Opera House stands, but it mm-hmm. was Fort Macquarie at that time. Yep. And the pipes leading into that are all coming down from roughly the Hyde Park level because Hyde Park is elevated when you think of the city of Sydney. Uh, the city of Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they're kind of going down the parallel streets of Pitt, Castle Ray, uh, Elizabeth, and then uh, also Phillip Street and Macquarie Street. Mm-hmm. Right, so that's the very first system that was built in the mid-1850s. Okay. And there were some serious concerns raised about this choice of outfall. Basically, everything's getting washed away Straight into the harbour there. Yep. And you'll notice that that's right next, to, right next to the domain, which is the residence of the governor himself. Mm. And he wasn't so sure about having raw sewage flowing into the harbour under his nose. His fears, however, were assuaged by the lead engineer who insisted that it was the best point of discharge for the project because of the strong seaward current there. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm sympathetic to the chief engineer here i mean if you're going for a gravity fed system from you know these areas that are mere meters above sea level where on earth are you supposed to put it yeah that isn't either sydney cove or farm cove or Benelong point yeah it has to go it has to go into the harbor really at this point yes exactly so i'm glad you mentioned the <laughs> The other options, because as you can see on our map, there are basically different systems discharging into respectively Blackwattle Bay, Darling Harbour, uh, Sydney Cove. Then there's Fort Macquarie, as mentioned, and then also Woolloomooloo Bay. Mm-hmm. The other cool thing looking at this map is you can immediately tell where the ridges are. Yes. Because none of the, um, the sort of sewer line catchments obviously fall either side of them. So the Oxford Street ridge is quite apparent as is the George Street one. Yeah, it's a beautiful image for showing watersheds, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really, really like that, and we're going to get to that in one moment. The only other thing that I wanted to um, quickly draw your attention to is you'll see that in very small type, there's the tank stream sewer yep. running into the southwest corner of Sydney Cove. So it was at this time that the tank stream breathed its last exhausted, polluted breath of open air. <laughs> <laughs> as it was contained within a small brick tunnel and officially became the sewerage pipe that it had long been in practice. Sad times. <laughs> a bit of a spoiler, this system does still exist, but it's no longer used for the city's sewerage, uh, which is now pumped uphill to the main line of the Bondi Ocean outfall sewer, uh, where it flows down to Ben Buckler and out into the ocean. Mm, it's storm water, right? Exactly. So this original system, all of these pipes we can see in this map are still in use, but it's now the stormwater drains. Which is just means creeks, really. Um, so it's sort of like Tank Stream is a creek once more, just a fully enclosed one. <laughs> exactly. Doing the same job as the river would otherwise. Mm. And for those uh, newly besotted with this network, there are guided tours of the Tank Stream sewer twice a year. 
but apparently they're in incredibly high demand, allocated by ballot, and one of the toughest tickets in town to get your hands on. Why is there only two then? Uh, good question. I believe they have to do some preparation work to uh, clean it all out and make sure that they've got it in a sanitary condition that they're happy to take people on a tour around. And also, I imagine you have to go at the right time of year when there's no rain, because if it's raining, it would be a death trap. Cool. Yeah. Okay. I think that one calls for a bit of urban exploration. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of exciting stuff under the ground now that we have this map to look at. Mm. So, other than the uh, privileged few who have been inside the Tankstream sewer tunnel, what is there to see from this early system in the city of Sydney? Uh, well, it's our Bathurst Street Hyde Park obelisk. Okay, so it's no longer a vent. So it's now a vent for a, for the stormwater system, yeah. Well, yeah, but I don't know that a stormwater system needs, needs a, vent. a vent because it doesn't have those gases. Yes, yeah, I don't think that it's particularly playing an important role anymore. But of course, it was playing a very significant role when this was a sewerage system. Uh, but the question that was on my mind, even after I found out that it was a sewerage vent, is why precisely is it there of all places? I think I can field that one looking at this map. <laughs> well then, <laughs> fire away, Jed. It's the junction of three lines, right? So they're getting a three for one on it. They've got the Pitt Street uh, connection that, that runs down to Bennelong Point. They've got Elizabeth Street that runs down Bennelong Point, And they've got a vent for the more southern system that drains into Darling Harbour and kind of goes via Hay Street. Exactly. Yeah. I feel like I have a new appreciation of the geography of the city of Sydney after thinking about this and seeing the map and thinking about the obelisk, because it really sits right on the watershed of these different systems. And if you think about it from that point, you look down a quite a steep hill to Central Station and the kind of Darling Harbour precinct, but then also to the north, the land slopes down towards Sydney Cove. Mm. So by building this one vent in this place, they were able to have all of those light gases that can build up in the system kind of move up the pipes and then be expelled at the obelisk. And as you'll know, there's an obelisk above the, the heads of the... Uh... Unsuspecting citizens. Yeah. And while we're on the obelisk, do we know who had a, a bit of a fetish for Egyptian culture that decided to do it in that particular style, given that one could have hidden a vent in almost anything? <laughs> Jed, I'm so glad you asked because <laughs> I have spent an awful long time looking into this question. And when I said that this could be a very long episode, it's in large part because of this, <laughs> the Egyptian connection. Okay. All right. So I've been very Sydney specific so far in this episode, quite out of character. And it's finally time to go on a tangential tour across the world. Excellent. <laughs> Really, we're going to jump back uh, into European history and what was going on whilst the convicts were scratching out the first kind of semblances of a settlement uh, around Sydney Cove, which was Napoleon's military invasion of the Ottoman-controlled Egypt in 1798. Okay. And this uh, led to the discovery, amongst other things, of the Rosetta Stone, but also a whole lot of uh, ancient Egyptian architecture and artifacts. It was like the wholesale ransacking of Egypt, right? Uh, there was definitely a lot, a lot of uh, military <laughs> conflict going on there. A lot of knowledge of Egyptian architecture being taken back to Europe, but also quite a lot of Egyptian architecture itself. Yeah. Yes. So this is often seen as a, the birth of Western Egyptology. It's a very significant moment. The British come in and fight the French down there, and they end up kind of bringing lots of spoils back from the theater of war as well. It really brings Egypt into the minds of Europeans, leads to a race to decipher the hieroglyphs, which are deciphered about 20 years later. Egypt is very hot in the 1800s. Okay. <laughs> so I have it on good authority from heritage listings, the Sydney of City Council, Sydney Water, everywhere I look, I find this one line saying that the sewerage vent is modeled on the proportions of Cleopatra's needle, which is a 3000 year old Egyptian obelisk that's currently not at home by the Nile, but on the Thames embankment in London. Jeez. <laughs> Hand it back. Sadly, I can't find any more information than that, though, although that, that one line is repeated everywhere. 
So after a little more digging, but not even very much digging, I had even more questions because I found that the Cleopatra's needle was kind of gifted in scare quotes to the British in 1819, but it wasn't transported to England and erected in London until 1877. Okay. Because transporting a single slab of stone of such epic proportions by sea at that time was really right on the cusp of their technological capabilities. And it was just going to be very expensive, very difficult. They couldn't be bothered for a very long time. Right. So when it was built in Sydney, that was actually in Egypt, in a wharf. Yes. Or potentially in situ. I don't know. Yeah. So so I... That's a good question. I'm not sure exactly if it was in situ or sitting in a dock ready to be taken at any time. Uh, But yes, this humble beauty on Elizabeth Street was built in 1857, so 20 years before Cleopatra's Needle arrives in London. And that means that unless some Sydney civil engineer had been on a leisure trip to Egypt, they wouldn't have ever actually laid eyes on Cleopatra's Needle before when they made a replica of it in Sydney. Yeah, but I have to presume that measurements were taken of the gift in situ in Egypt, and then that's that that was widely circulated, and that's how the Hyde Park Sioux event was modelled on the proportions. But I think this remain, remains one of the great unanswered questions of life for many Sydney siders. That is so interesting. <laughs> and I've cheekily done a little bit of Googling while you've been talking and discovered, as you no doubt well know, that there is another Cleopatra's Needle in New York in Central Park. Indeed, there is. That's, uh, I was just going to mention that. So that's excellent, excellent Googling. Uh, this one that is also called Cleopatra's Needle. Confusingly, both of them are at least a thousand years older than Cleopatra's reign, but I guess Cleopatra's famous, so it's a good nickname for them. Uh, they have nothing oh. to do with Cleopatra, <laughs> but they're both called Cleopatra's Needle. The Americans got in on the act, of course, because if you're a powerful nation with a big global city, you need a large obelisk in it. But theirs was erected in 1881. So again, our humble sandstone number has been there for longer than the uh, Egyptian obelisk in New York. We've got the original um, <laughs> Western Hemisphere Cleopatra's needle. We have, we have, except I'm sorry to inform you that the French did beat us to the chase there. They were gifted a monumental <laughs> obelisk in 1830. They were actually gifted two. They were kind of flanking the entrance to the Luxor temple. But it was so difficult to tow the first one across the Mediterranean on a purpose-built barge and place it in the Place de la Concorde in 1833, where it still stands today, that they basically just gave up on the second one. They left it there. And it was only in the 1980s that Mitterrand returned it to the Egypt- to Egyptian ownership. And it still stands uh, at the entrance to the Luxor Temple, which has now got a very lopsided entrance because one of the gigantic obelisks is in place in Paris. Right. So the French, like, and I'll use some air quotes here, owned the obelisk that was still there for uh, over 150 odd years. And then yep. in the 80s, were like, right, you can have it back. Yeah. Thanks for looking after it for us. <laughs> yeah. Wild. Well, that's fascinating. Yes. So, so having a having an obelisk is is a rite of passage in the in the nineteenth century for major cities, and Sydney has its own. And I've become very fond of it now, knowing that it wasn't stolen from Egypt, but is just a humble piece of Sydney sandstone. It's the oldest public monument in the Hyde Park area, and mm-hmm. it's the only sandstone. A sewerage vent in Sydney at all. Okay. This leads me to, you've, you've raised a thought in my mind, which is my hometown of Newcastle, New South Wales, has a enormous obelisk right near where I went to school, actually, but right, sort of in town there. And I always just kind of assumed it was, it's whitewashed. And I just kind of assumed it was like something someone built in the 50s. But maybe it's a relic yeah <laughs> maybe <laughs> I, I don't know um but it could well be I, it seems like they were very popular at this time in the kind mm. of early to mid i guess also to late 1800s mm. uh we actually even in sydney itself there is an even older sandstone obelisk built in 1818 which is actually the earliest surviving public monument of australia's colonization and just to keep you on your toes i wondered if you knew what that might be 
I'm trying to think where it would go. I mean, I feel like the domain, maybe Macquarie Street. It's uh, maybe maybe it would help you to know that uh, surveyors would be particularly interested in it when they were building roads. Observatory Hill. That's a good guess. I imagine you you probably know of it. It's the Obelisk of Distances on Loftus Street, which is the official center of Sydney and the starting point for the measuring of all road distances in New South Wales. Okay, I didn't know this was a thing, and yeah. I'll have to go visit it. That's right up my alley. Yeah, so it's also a Francis Greenway number, because I thought you'd ask me that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it says on the side, you'd, you'd love it, it has inscriptions of the distance to all of the kind of major inland outposts yeah, of the as, colony as at the of time. 1818, very yeah. cool. I was always laboring under the pretense that the distance measurement was based on the GPO uh, on Martin Place and George Street. That's Yeah, that's a really good point because I also feel like I've read somewhere or heard somewhere that that is considered the place from which measurements are taken. I'm not sure if it still is this obelisk or not, but definitely mm. at the time in 1818, it was the, the official center of Sydney. Yeah, right. Well, that might be a tie-in for our inevitable episode on the postal service in New South Wales. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it already. <laughs> Back to the sewers, you were just telling me that that's the only Sydney sandstone vent, which obviously led me to wonder what the other vents are made out of. Uh, yeah, there's a lot. There's some monumental brick vents. I'm glad you asked me about the vents because the vents were really what got me into this and I continue to be excited by them. And I was actually thinking you might know some of them maybe a bit more intimately than I do. So the first one that's really going to, that sticks in my mind is the enormous chimney looking thing in North Bondi that you can see from the beach. You can really see from anywhere along the coastal path if you're doing the Bondi to Bronte walk. It's big and it's surrounded by a golf course. Yep. That is the point where the Bondi Ocean Outfall sewer kind of dispenses into the ocean Mm -hmm. and has been there since the late 1880s. Okay. But it was originally a brick number, beautiful, presumably red brick, but it's now a kind of concrete and steel one since the, uh, I think that was replaced within about 20 or 30 years. So it's still old, but it's not the original brick one. Okay. There are two other enormous vents that are very beautiful that are both from this original Bondi Ocean Outfall sewer. One is in Bellevue Hill, which I don't, I've never seen it before because it's not a place that I particularly go to, but it's on the top of a hill in a kind of suburban area, not that far from Bondi Junction. I need to go and have a look at it. It's also hard to see it from... From the street, you can't get a look at the base of it. I don't know how they've... But they seem to have hidden it behind quite a few properties. Okay. Oh, that's within your 5K radius, I'd say, so... <laughs> the other one from the original uh, line is in the Inner West. It's in Glebe, right? It's basically... If you're on Parramatta Road and there's that office works opposite the University of Sydney. Mm-hmm. Behind that, going towards the harbour... It is on York Street, which is a small uh, suburban street in Glebe. And it's just this enormous uh, chimney looking thing that is a huge brick sewage vent. Okay. Well, I'll keep my eyes peeled when I'm in these areas. There are also other huge vents. These were all built in the late late 1800s, 1890s, and into the early 1900s, uh, maybe up till 1920, but ni- ni- 1900s mostly, mm. back when uh, civic engineering was on huge proportions and nicely, elaborately decorated. Yeah, I know the, San- I know the Stanmore one. That was in my mate's backyard, actually. <laughs> it was like his backyard ended and then boom, there was this like 20, 30 meter brick vent nice so um, the stammer one i'm not sure there's yeah there's quite a few there's one in marrickville uh, on premier street which has two workers cottage looking terrace cottage things as part of the construction which is cool there's one on the boulevard in lewisham uh, there's also one in north sydney on the corner of uh falcon and miller street mm, okay there's a few quite a few of them and there's a, there's a blog of a very interesting lady who I believe is a graphic artist. And she has a, a blog called the Publication blog, like publication, <laughs> but with poo, 
where she details her adventures around Sydney, going to check out these uh, old sewer vents. Very good. So if you're interested, I would definitely recommend going to that. All right, the publication. I'll be there. Yeah. Um, and I'm hoping to post some pictures of these vents as well. Sadly, technology has changed far for the worse in terms of epic chimneys throughout town. And now, I don't know when you were thinking about surveying how much you look at uh, sewage lines, but I now walk around suburbs and constantly am seeing all of the sewage infrastructure because there are thin metal poles. They look just like poles. And on the top, there's kind of what looks like a wire globe. And they're everywhere once you start to notice them. Yeah. They're basically the new uh, sewage vents. Yeah. But instead of building like a massive, massive chimney every kind of large distance or so, <laughs> you know, like mm. one in, well, there's like one in uh, Glebe, one in Bondi and one in Bellevue Hill, you know, like they're really spaced yeah. out. They now are kind of maybe only about mm, 30, 40, 50 meters apart. Mm. Sometimes you can even kind of see the line. If you can see a few of them in a row, you can see where the sewage line's going. But they're, because they're so frequently placed, they're, they're much smaller. They're kind of mass produced. They're not very interesting to look at. Well, they're also in every house. Yes. And every house also has a small vent as well. Yeah. No, I, sewer infrastructure is one of the super interesting things because it can, uh, and I, I've definitely come across it a lot more since surveying. I've cracked many, many a sewer manhole and um, depthed it. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where you can quite easily go about your life without ever pausing to consider it, whereas something like roads, uh, good luck. But yeah, it's there and it's this whole complex network. And the way we resolve some issues is quite, uh, with the development of it is quite interesting as well. Because, and this is something that I came across uh, in my studies of surveying, was that when they place like a mainline network to a new area, they have to build it presuming substantial growth, especially if it's low down, because when you build the next suburb over, assuming that's sort of slightly uphill and in the same catchment, all that is going to flow into the existing network. Right. And so if you haven't built that, yeah, if you haven't built that first network with sufficient capacity, you can't do that. Yeah. So then it's like, well, what are you going to do? So then they come up with these other interesting solutions and now we don't just do gravity fed sewer systems. And I'm sorry if I'm cutting in on any of your future planned content here, (laughs) but we do, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? You probably know it. I I didn't look hugely into this, but yes, there are a number of newer systems around, especially kind of the outskirts of Greater Sydney that have different kind of pumping and storing Mm. uh, systems in place that are kind of the, the newer a lot of the times have a more sophisticated kind of water recycling and um, filtering uh, facilities. Yeah. And we just pump uphill. So it's almost like you can now build a sewer network without any real reference to the topography because you just put it in, have it feed downhill from all the houses. And it doesn't even necessarily need to go downhill because you can just go deeper is another solution. Mm -hmm. And then get to a certain fixed point, boom, pump it out. Right. So, yeah. Anyway, that's a digression to some some well, small amount of knowledge I have on contemporary <laughs> sewage management. It's not a digression at all, Jed, because that's basically what we are, what I was planning on talking about throughout the rest of the episode. So, basically, I'm going to go back and we'll, we'll talk through what happened in the history of Sydney's system. But all of the ideas about gravity and pumping and expanding catchments with more and more people stacking up on old infrastructure is all going to come into play. Awesome. Foreshadowing then. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Uh, So we were looking at the map of the original system that's more or less in what we would now consider the Sydney CBD area. And by 1875, so only 20 years after the first parts of this system were put in place, there was a large stinking mud bank at Fort Macquarie and sewage floating on the surface of the salt water, oscillating with the movements of the tides. (laughs) Apparently, certain winds blew effluvia over a considerable area of the northern part of the city. Yeah, I bet they did. Yep, and at at Darling Harbour, there were accumulating banks of filthy and putrid mud. And basically, you could just go on quoting about all of these different uh, harbours and bays. They all were full of sewage. Yeah, 19th century, man. (laughs) It's just a wild, wild time. 
the harbour currents towards the ocean didn't didn't quite work out as planned. And a petition by 3,800 people in 1876 uh, gave a little bit more detail about what they were unhappy with, with the current system. They said that the filth in the harbour, rend- and this is a quote, rendered all business occupations upon its shore disgustingly offensive. They claimed it increased sickness <laughs> and that it was even silting up navigable water to a large extent. Yeah. And the petition even complained that this disgusting state of affairs was uh, so well-known overseas that it was discouraging migration and hindering trade. I find it hard to believe that these weren't problems every industrial city was dealing with at that point in time. I think they might have been, yeah, thinking that they they were a bit more of an exception than they possibly were. And maybe people (laughs) were used to stinking cities. But, uh, yeah, things certainly weren't looking good. And things got... Serious as well, when you were mentioning in our last episode, in your episode, about a gay Sydney, the naval facilities at Garden Island and Woolloomooloo. Mm-hmm. And the Navy were none too pleased when their suddenly sewage-choked anchorage grounds resulted in an 1875 typhoid fever outbreak aboard a moored man-of-war ship. And this was just another contributing factor in the push to create a better system that took the sewage further away. Okay. That's disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) It just really like, you know, I often think about pristine landscape of of Sydney and Australia prior to colonization and, you know, these indigenous land use practices that fostered diversity and allowed all these different plant and animal communities to flourish and then juxtapose it with the arrival of, like, white settlement. And I don't think it could be more stark than yeah. the harbour just absolutely choked with human feces <laughs> inside of 100 years. And such a short time frame. That's the yeah. thing that always blows me away as well. It's like, this is, some, like, less than 100 years. You're saying that the harbour is so silted up with sewage that it's not navigable anymore. Like, that's that's wild. Yeah, absolutely crazy. Now, I wanted to give a brief mention of the fact that when they were discussing new options to get this sewage further away from the city, not everyone was as excited about washing the waste down enormous sewer tunnels and into the ocean as you might imagine. Because people at the time were probably far more acquainted with and aware of using treated waste as manure and fertilizer. Mm. They were very aware that it seemed very wasteful to just pipe it off into the into salt water. Okay. So the Sanitary Reform League, for instance, was founded in 1880. Sadly, this is after they've announced plans to just pipe it off into the ocean. So this is kind of in opposition to those plans. And they advocated instead for a system of the collection of fecal matter for fertilizer purposes as, and I quote, this great agricultural treasure should not be lost. Okay. Yeah, proponents of such a system included a New South Wales Chief Justice and the Governor-General. And despite a fanciful suggestion to create a pneumatic system for transporting solid waste that sadly never got off the ground, ultimately it just didn't work out because ultimately having human waste sitting around waiting for collection was just so strongly associated with the old days of the cesspit system. Mm. People weren't, weren't that eager to go back to it. I think that's in the long run probably for the best because even though we had some issues with the ocean method that I'm sure you'll get to, as Sydney developed, all that agricultural land that previously people were using the sewage on would have become houses. And so we would have had to kind of keep sending the poo further and further west and in greater and greater quantity. Yeah. So I think we do now treat the sewage more before rather than just letting it flow out into the ocean in its raw state. And some of that is reused, but certainly, yeah, there's difficulties with an ever expanding city about how you kind of adapting to that. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there was some success in arguing for making use of sewage because although the dry conservancy method didn't win the day, any areas of Greater Sydney at the time that drained south towards Botany Bay, so we're kind of thinking of parts of Surrey Hills, definitely Redfern, Alexandria, Newtown kind of areas, mm-hmm. they had a sewerage system built 
which as you were saying, this is all kind of gravity fed, which flowed down to the Botany Bay sewerage farm. Have you heard of this? No, but I'm thinking we'll be somewhere near the um, junction of the Cooks and um, Alexandria Canal into Botany Bay kind of area, like where the airport is. You are spot on. It uh, was 309 acres bounded by the Cooks River to the north and Botany Bay to the east, which when I looked on Google Maps is roughly where the suburb of Kaima is today. Mm -hmm. So shout out to Kaima. I believe you know that area quite well. You live close to there, right? For a while? Yeah, yeah. This sewerage farm had a three field rotation. One third of the land had sewage applied to it. And then that was just actively filtering the sewage. The one third was being prepared for crops. And then one third was actually growing crops at any one time. So sewage was never directly applied to crops or taken up directly through the roots, but it was used to kind of replenish the soil. And at first they seemed to be working. The farm produced cabbages, turnips, hay fodder, sorghum, all kinds of stuff. And inspections confirmed that the water leaving the site had been appropriately filtered. But while some members of the public were into the reuse of sewage, the hard-headed number crunches and bureaucrats amongst us were not. Because basically it didn't make that much economic sense. Right. It's just hard to extract, especially at the time, it was kind of hard to extract useful fertilizer from sewage that's carried by water because it's basically mostly water. So you have to do a huge amount of filtering. Yeah. And fertilizer was in relatively low demand at the time because, as you said, the colony is expanding and taking more and more indigenous land away and that hasn't been used for intensive agriculture that strips the resources out of it. Mm. So you can just go and get more land that that's relatively fertile rather than needing to invest in more fertilizer. So it just, it didn't make economic sense to have this farm. Right. There's actually still to this day, quite a few market gardens around Kaima um, area. And they're, yeah, they're quite extensive. So if you eat fresh produce in Sydney, I think there's every chance that it may come from there. Although no longer filtered at the Botany Bay treatment works. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. So sadly this, this, uh, Botany Bay Treatment Works doesn't exist anymore, as you mentioned. The farm basically was never expanded. So whilst the number of houses it served and the amount of sewage it was supposed to be treating more than tripled uh, within less than kind of 20 years, by the early 1900s, it was a complete failure, predictably, because there was overflowing sewage everywhere. The site wasn't large enough to treat the amount of sewage that was arriving there. Okay, so that was closed, demolished, Strucken from the history books. Yep. And the basically that sewage was just, the pipe was extended to uh, the Long Bay outfall, what's now Malabar uh, Beach area. And that is still the largest ocean outfall for sewage uh, by population in Sydney. Okay. It basically drains a huge part of the inner west, the west and southwest Sydney. And even anything in the eastern suburbs south of kind of Bondi, Tamarama. Yep. Also in 1916, the North Shore kind of followed suit and abandoned various smaller scale treatment schemes and kind of harbor outfall schemes and created the North Head Ocean Outfall System. Mm -hmm. My parents have done the tour at um, at the Manly Sewer Treatment Works cool i didn't know that that's interesting i would love to do i yeah i'm i'm really interested in this stuff now um and that interestingly that north north head outfall services areas all the way out to Parramatta. okay so it's quite a large catchment as well well that has to be pumped right i that's a good question i don't know exactly how it works because Parramatta's like six meters above sea it's really low right <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm not quite yeah. sure exactly how that works. We're going to get to pumping in a moment. But yeah, these mm. these original ones, the, the main line of the sewer would be gravity fed. Mm-hmm. But then you there were from very early on schemes to, to pump up to the main line. Right. And stop me if I'm if I'm jumping ahead too much here. But um, my dad grew up on the northern beaches back in the good old days of n- less or, or perhaps not at all treated sewage flowing out into the ocean. And he's a surfer and he tells stories of surfing in the 60s when when there was an onshore blowing, there would be poo floating at like off, you know, South Stain Surf Club or whatever, which is obviously disgusting. 
and um, and led to eventually what we what we now have today, which is where all these ocean outflows also feature treatment work, so that what's being pumped out isn't um, raw sewage. Yes. So this was fascinatingly, as you've mentioned, did not happen until surprisingly recently. Until the seventies, there was it was basically raw sewage going straight out, and then yeah, even right. then, it was quite slow through late seventies and eighties to actually start filtering it properly and treating it in different ways. So that's definitely a recent thing, and that's really cool that your dad actually has memories of how it used to be. <laughs> Swimming, surfing, and poo. <laughs> I've only ever read about it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and I think that I think that the, the the sort of solution prior to that point was like, oh, extend it, just keep extending it offshore. Yeah, which works fine until, as, as Dad says, like once it's blowing on shore, it doesn't matter if it's two k's out, like it's coming back. <laughs> yes, so that all of those lines have been extended as well in the second half of the twentieth century. So they're now between two and a half to four kilometers off the coast where the pipe actually discharges the sewage. But as you said, especially in summer when you have the northeasterly winds coming in, that that was when frequently it would be blown back to shore. Right. The other interesting thing is that this was a problem really from the start, but the the areas by the coast weren't that populated at the time, like in the 1890s and early 1900s. But by the 1920s, they're really popular places to be. Surf culture in Sydney is really big. Surf life-saving clubs are kind of everywhere. Like it's, it's a place to be. And it was an issue, but there was really strong incentive not to publicize it too much for local residents and councils because- they reasoned that people wouldn't come to the beach anymore if they were hearing about all the sewage. So actually, it's probably massively underreported how much that happened. Okay. Because uh, it was considered to be against against uh, the business interests of the locals. So interestingly, in 1929, the Daily Telegraph published this like scandalous headline. Uh, the headline was, Horrible Sewage-Loaded Sea Washes Bondi Surfers. And I had a famous image of this curve of what looks like disgusting sewage water curving right in from the outfall to Bondi Beach. But but the response was initially to like some some discussion of, yeah, we need to treat this better. We need to find better ways of dealing with it. But at the end of the day, there was just mass indignation against the Daily Telegraph from locals and calls to boycott the newspaper because they were so upset about the portrayal of Bondi and the, the local area. And they <laughs> that were worried is so that- Bondi. Yeah, <laughs> they, they said it wasn't fair to the council and ratepayers to say that it was an arc of sewage, especially after so much money had been spent to beautify the beach and to build the Bondi Pavilion. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Yeah, I like that part too. Yeah, so look, this is not the order that I planned on telling the story, but I think we're probably getting towards the end of what I wanted to discuss. The last thing that... You've been talking about pumping back uphill to these main gravity-fed sewage pipes that are still the system today. So 75% of Sydney's sewage still goes out of these three major outfalls, the Mm -hmm. Long Bay, Bondi, and North Head one. But from the very start, even our original system in the Sydney CBD, this is all quite low-lying land. Mm. So they needed to pump the sewage up from the uh, areas by the harbour to the main line that was kind of running down the kind of from Oxford Street, brilliant piece of engineering and surveying to get it to be on a constant gradient so that it was running downhill to Bondi. Yeah. And so there are the original 18 sewage stations that you actually shared me a a map with all of them marked down from, I believe, is it Stu Khan? Is that the Twitter... uh, yeah, yeah, he's a water engineer I follow on Twitter that shared some content of, of on this topic that I forwarded your way. Yeah, so I, I want to get that map up too. It sounds like a fun challenge as well to try to race people to see all 18 of them in a day who can do it quickest. <laughs> They're kind of beautiful buildings. The original central control station was unsurprisingly built right next to the powerhouse. So what's now the powerhouse museum, which was creating electricity for the trams at the time, but also that was the electricity needed to, to pump the sewage back uphill. Okay. Because at the time there wasn't really mains city power. And so you needed to specifically bring electricity to all of these stations. 
And so there was one man in the control station, which is still there. It's right next to the Ian Thorpe Aquatic Center across the road from the Powerhouse Museum. It's quite a beautiful building. He would look at kind of a, a board of all of the different um, stations and there was a float in that station attached with re- a really, really, really long piece of wire, I guess, that indicated how full it was. And once it got quite full, the tank in that station, he would then flick on the pump. The electricity would go down to that station, pump it all back up, and then they would uh, pump it to the, the pipe, taking it down to Bondi. So he was managing that process remotely. Like these wires went from all over Sydney back to the powerhouse. Yeah, all over quite an extensive area. From from like uh, Rushcutters Bay actually was a slight exception. They had a different power plant there for the two of them. So I think it was the original 16. Basically, I guess from like what's now King's Cross to roughly over towards like Balmain area, I think. Yeah, it's quite a large area. Okay. And when was this happening? I think that it was only for for about maybe 20 years max. They're all built by 1904. And the ocean outfall sewer was completed by 1889. So for those 15 years, I guess they were ma- constructing all of the pump stations, getting that all completely set up. And then maybe only for another 10 or 20 years after that, I think, until they all had mains power on the streets and they didn't need the centralized system anymore. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. But I thought it was pretty cool, the floats with really, really long cables. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so you can go and check out all of those original uh, sewage pump stations. They're still there. The one that the only one that I was very aware of already was the one at Rushcutters Bay because I, it's right next to a, a cricket oval where I used to play soccer and cricket a little bit uh, just at various times in my life. Um, and I remember always seeing it and thinking it was like a cute little funny looking cottage and wondering what it was. But it's a, it's a pumping station for sewage. Cool. Okay. And so that I'm guessing that kind of brings us to a contemporary moment. Yeah, why not? So what can you tell me about Sydney's contemporary sewer network? You said that something like 75% of it all goes out through Long Bay, Bondi and North Head. Yeah. What I'm curious about is the other 25%. Yeah, if we've got any any sewer that's released into the um, river system of the sort of Hawkesbury Nepean at all. Well, Jed, I'm glad that you asked. I do have a map in front of me of the contemporary layout of the system. Mm-hmm. It looks like the Penrith sewage system is kind of an independent system of its own. And that looks like it would end up after treatment flowing into the Nepean into the, and then into the Hawkesbury. There are a number of other systems. The Sutherland Shire has its own system. And even the Northern Beaches, actually, which you mentioned earlier, has its own system. But the vast majority of Sydney's population probably falls within either the North Head catchment or the Long Bay catchment. Uh-huh. Um, but then, yeah, there's there's kind of like rough little different systems around the place. And it looks like f- further out towards Penrith, St. Mary's, maybe even Quakers Hill, they might flow into uh, river systems. Okay, cool. Yeah, there's um, I've got the map up and I'm having a look. And yeah, there seems to be a lot of different ones that flow into the broader Hawkesbury Nepean catchment around the hills and the northwest. And the Shire, of course, has its entirely own system um, with the outflow at Cronulla there. Okay, cool. That's really interesting. Awesome. Well, I believe that's more or less everything that I wanted to discuss about Sydney's sewers and the history of their construction. I wanted to quickly mention some of the sources that I was looking at, which predominantly was an excellent PhD thesis that I was able to find online, written by Sharon Beda, Sharon Beda, in 1989 at the University of New South Wales. It's called From Pipe Dreams to Tunnel Vision, Engineering, Decision Making, and Sydney's Sewerage System. <laughs> You've always got to have like a, <laughs> some kind of pun in your title for a PhD. It's compulsory. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good read. The... I, primarily drew on the first two or three or four chapters, which were about the kind of early history. And then there's extensive details about the current system and all of the treatment options, but it was too much for this episode. The publication blog that I mentioned is good for people who are interested in going out on the streets of Sydney when they're allowed to again and looking at some of these old brick vents from the turn of the century, which are pretty cool. And then uh, you put me onto Jed Stu Khan's Twitter, and he has all kinds of interesting information about Sydney and global water treatment and sewage treatment. Yeah, no, cool. Yeah, you obviously focused on mainly focused on a particular historical moment, which I think was a good cause. Really interesting to hear about 
those early problems and the need for a sewer system, and then subsequently the problems with the sewer system as implemented and the need for a bigger solution. And I think it's so interesting that eventually that system too faced problems and had to have a new system implemented of actually treating the sewer properly before just ditching it into a body of water. Yeah, it kind of shows the continuity there, right? That, that it's not like at any one point they just figured it out and solved it. We're, we're always evolving and trying to meet similar problems to what people were trying to meet in the mid-1800s. Yeah, and the contemporary version of that conversation, I think, is about wastewater treatment to be used as as clean water for towns and cities. And it's sort of something that plays out still in Sydney. I remember before they built the desal plant, one possible solution was like, well, let's treat the sewer and use that as clean drinking water. And obviously it's like quite well known that Singapore does this. And I know in Southeast Queensland, they're kind of having these conversations because there's a lot of people living in an area that doesn't have a very reliable uh, water supply. Yeah, it's quite a, kind of an ongoing evolution of problem solving. And so, yeah, it's definitely something something that I think can go under the radar for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And actually, on the point of slow evolution, the tiny last piece of trivia, the last remaining discharge point for raw sewage in the entirety of New South Wales was in Volcluse and Diamond Bay. And they were scheduled to finally be diverted for treatment at the main Ben Buckler outlet that we've been talking about that's been there since 1889. That was meant to be done in 2020. I don't know if COVID uh, got in the way of those plans, but until that is complete, uh, then it was unsafe to swim in Diamond Bay, uh, which I don't think many people were doing. Still? Yeah. Or possibly as recently as last year? As uh, Definitely in 2019, it would, in 2018, yeah. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. Crazy, hey. Yeah, I wouldn't even know you could get down at Diamond Bay. It's so cliffy. Yeah, I, I think that was probably why they never bothered. Cool. Okay, well, thanks for sharing that. And I'll uh, <laughs> carefully avoid Diamond Bay. <laughs> yeah, well, it's probably all right now or soon. Okay. All right. Well, uh, that brings my episode to an end. You seem to have enjoyed it, Jed. I hope that all of our listeners did too. I'm not sure it'll be to everyone's taste, but I'm sure there's more than uh, more than a handful of people just like me who will be thrilled with the topic you chose. Excellent. Well, then I believe, uh, before we move any further, that I am due a clue for what you will be talking about in a fortnight's time. You are? I haven't considered a tie into this episode, although maybe I should have been, as I really enjoyed the um, unintentional tie-in between my story last fortnight and this episode being the pink condom placed over the obelisk on Bathurst and Elizabeth Street. So maybe you can attempt to come up with some sort of connection between these two episodes. That's your challenge, apart from obviously also deciphering the clue. Great, more challenges. Let's do it. (laughs) So the story I'm going to tell next fortnight is the story of a true colonial Sydney dynasty. Oh, yeah. The Scottish patriarch of the family came out to Sydney as colonial secretary and his family played a most important role in the intellectual development and governance of New South Wales throughout the 19th century. Their legacy lives on through two particularly significant and very different contributions to Sydney, although as of 2020, neither of these contributions holds their family name. All right. I think if I, I also believe your theme for this season without being about the bush has been drinking. And I believe there was a large party thrown by these people uh, in the early to mid 1800s. Mm-hmm. There's also a hilarious proposal that they made about establishing an aristocracy, a, a nobility. Well, I think you may be, in fact, on the wrong track there, oh. Alistair. Um, although the, the Wentworths would be another great uh, story from Sydney at, at a later date. Well, then I don't know what you're going to be talking about. <laughs> That's good. Well, I look forward to telling you about it next fortnight. All right. Excellent. On, on a final note... The uh, pink condom treatment that the obelisk in Sydney got, it's another connection to the uh, the wider world of obelisks because it was actually first done in Paris in the aforementioned Place de la Concorde obelisk that we've discussed in this episode uh. in 1993. Yeah, there you go. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed the story. If you did, please tell your friends and family about it. Uh, we love having more people listening to us. And if you've already told your friends and family about it and have no one more to tell, then please consider posting a review on whichever platform you listen to podcasts, because that's the best way of getting the greater public aware of our podcast. And if you've got any suggestions for a story that you think we'd all enjoy, you can email us at storiesfromsydney at gmail.com. If you could please let us know whether the suggestions for Jed or Alistair in the subject line, that would be very helpful. <laughs> and if you would like to see some images about the sewage network or of this map of the original sewage network in Sydney, then you can follow us on Instagram, which is stories from Sydney, or find us on Facebook at stories from Sydney. See you next time for my story from Sydney, which will not be about the Wentworth family. <laughs>